welcome to Ipsodixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests today are Emily Croucher, Pilar Escontrias, Efren Hudnell, and Donna Sadati Soto. So welcome, all of you, to, to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm really glad I was able to get you guys on because I think this is a really important project that that you all are doing. I wonder if we could start by having each of you just say who you are, talk a little bit about sort of your own background, like where you went to school or if you're still in school and sort of where you're planning on practicing and what you personally are doing in relation to the United for a Diploma Privilege Project. Sure. So I can start. This is, so this is Emily Croucher. I'm a graduate of the University of California, Irvine School of Law. I'm going to be a public defender uh, in Kentucky with the Department of Public Advocacy. Um, I am helping organize with United for Diploma Privilege in Kentucky specifically, and I also help out maintaining our Facebook account and our Twitter account. Hi, y'all. This is Donna Sadati Soto. I attended Stanford for college, and I now recently graduated from Harvard Law School. While I was there, I did a lot of family law work and a lot of immigration law work. Um, And I've been with the United for Diploma Privilege movement since it started um, ramping up back at the end of March. And um, Bilad and I got a lot of the momentum going here in California. And so I work on a number of the different petitions, um, documents, uh, as well as uh, help run social media when I can, though Emily is the uh, MVP of social media. Um, And I just sort of coordinate all the different um, logistical needs that need to get done on the back end of the movement as well. Hi, everyone. My name is Pilar Escontrias. I am a proud Chicana from California. And I am also um, with Donna. We we started this Dipl- United for Diploma Privilege movement, uh, specifically geared toward California, and has now expanded. And we've had we have coalition partners uh, in now thirty one states. So I've been really proud. I met Emily. We went to uh, law school together. I'm, I graduated from UCI. Before that, I got my PhD at Northwestern, um, and went to undergrad. I'm in my 30s, so I'm a non-traditional grad uh, law student, as they say. (laughs) Um, I was shocked when I found out I was not traditional uh, in one more way of my life. So I'm really excited to be here. And thank you so much, Brian, for amplifying this movement and for amplifying our voices. As you'll hear throughout, we'll be talking about our specific states, but also kind of making a bigger nationwide push for a re-envisioning of what licensure looks like. Hi, I'm Efren. It's uh, pronounced like epinephrine without the epin, but spelled like refrain without the first R. Uh, I'm a graduate of Seattle University School of Law up here in Washington State. Um, I think it's no secret by now, uh, we're one of the states that has uh, has committed to uh, a diploma privilege option for this year's uh, set of bar takers. Um, and that's that's no mistake. That's a result of advocacy, both on, the, uh, both on behalf of students, by students, uh, faculty members, uh, practitioners in the area. Um, a little bit of background by myself. Uh, I'm also a non-traditional student. Um, I spent most of my 20s wearing a uniform uh, as an army officer, starting on starting off in combat arms, uh, then went over to the intelligence side. Um, came to law school because I wanted to 
build something up instead of tear it down. And so here I am, uh, got involved with this movement in particular because I was the uh, Student Bar Association president uh, and there was just a lot of momentum, uh, a lot of concerns around the safe administration of this examination. Um, and I guess we can go into the reasons for that later in a little bit later on, but uh, yeah, that's, that's how I got started and then uh, linked up with Pilar, uh, Donna, uh, and Emily through, through our work. Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about what United for Diploma Privilege is, how it got started, and sort of what it's currently doing to help organize or unite people in different states who are pushing for diploma privilege in this kind of critical moment. Sure, I can I can start answering that a little bit. Um, we envisioned United for Diploma Privilege as a coalition of individuals and in their representative capacity as institutional actors, recognizing the critical moment that we live in right now uh, with COVID and with the mass social justice and righteous uprisings that we're seeing across the nation. As numerous people have mentioned before, we did emerge in March. Um, so we've been around for a while and you know, before uh, things started ramping up nationwide, but this movement was really premised, we call it a movement premised on the ethos of solidarity and camaraderie. Um, we envision a, a legal profession that is open to all and that is representative of the communities which we serve. And we do want to highlight that although this movement is fairly new, we stand on the shoulders of people of color, BIPOC folks who have for many generations been oppressed by legal institutions. And in that vein, acknowledging the disparate impact uh, on communities of color, not only vis-a-vis -vis COVID, but also just in the legal profession generally, we're so underrepresented. We saw this as a critical moment of rupture. And moments of rupture, rupture for anthropologists are really exciting because that means that we can envision new ways of being and becoming. So this all started off with a few conversations, right? Um, independent folks emailing one another and asking what they were doing about diploma privilege and what began as uh, smaller networks just really expanded overnight and became a national movement. So we are in flux right now. It's very organic. Um, we do identify rather than an organization as kind of a coalition at the present moment. But, you know, so much we're redefining a lot of what we um, are hoping <laughs> as an organization to become. So maybe some other folks can step in about what they envision United for Diploma Privilege becoming. Yeah, I'll just add on, Pilar, to your point about this being sort of a national solidarity movement. I think when Pilar and I first started doing the work here in California, we very quickly realized that, you know, the the struggles and the needs of students under the current circumstances, there was a universal thread across the nation um, for students in all these different jurisdictions. And so, you know, a letter that we had written that had all of this useful research was better if we shared that out so that we could build a momentum nationally um, so that people could sort of get familiar with, I guess, what was at the time in March a very uh, new concept, right? Diploma privilege. Now it's sort of gained speed and people know what we're talking about when we say the words diploma privilege, but just being able to share those resources. And like Bilar mentioned, being able to tap into the different networks nationwide really helped to build the movement and help it grow to what it is today. 
Well, so I know that United for Diploma Privilege is a kind of nationwide movement focused on changing the national narrative around licensure in this moment, but also attorney licensure more broadly. But it's also a movement focused on particular states because, of course, that's where where licensure actually happens. So I wonder if you, you could each talk a little bit about the state that you're currently working in or working on to try to change the discourse, sort of what that particular state is currently doing and where you think you'd like to see it get. Yeah, I can start. Um, so I'm organizing in Kentucky. So I started organizing in Kentucky in March when Pilar and Donna started writing the letter that they wrote for the California uh, State Bar and Supreme Court. And I was still living in California at this time. And um, I'm not from Kentucky. I have no network in Kentucky. I didn't know anybody in Kentucky. So I um, essentially adopted the letter that Pilar and Donna wrote, and I made it Kentucky-specific. And I circulated it to the few folks that I knew in Kentucky through my future job as a public defender here. Um, and I posted it. There's a meme page on Facebook for law students, and there's like 90,000 members in it. And I posted it there. And some Kentucky folks started signing. And I emailed everybody who signed personally, and I thanked them for signing. And I asked them to please share this with their networks because I had no network in Kentucky. And so I couldn't get it out in the same way that folks in California could do or that I could do in California where I knew people. Um, and so, and then Brian, I think that's how you and I actually met was when I was advocating in March and April for diploma privilege, you give me a retweet. Um, and so that was really helpful. And then, you know, I reached out to the different SBA presidents at the Kentucky law schools, wasn't met with um, open arms. Like I thought I would to get help to circulate my petition. Um, luckily, my, my employer, the Kentucky Department of Public Advocacy, was kind enough to circulate my petition to all the lawyers in the agency to sign. Um, and so that's how I got most of my signatures was, was through essentially um, folks passing it to one another because I didn't have an institutional structure to uh, circulate my petition. Um, and then, of course, in April, the Kentucky Supreme Court said, we're going to have an in-person July bar exam. Um, so the movement in Kentucky was kind of squashed for a while up until maybe two weeks ago when Washington was granted diploma privilege and then Oregon two days ago, I think people around the country are getting excited again. So I'm getting emails from folks in Kentucky asking, what am I doing? What am I working on? And so now I'm working with three students at the University of Kentucky School of Law. I'm going to give them a shout out. Um, Justin Blankenship. Andrew Gillespie and Cornelius Kearns. We are now drafting a petition to the Kentucky Supreme Court, and we are asking for a waiver of the admission to practice rule in light of the coronavirus and in light of the hyper um, you know, Breonna Taylor t t yeah, murder in Kentucky. So we are, we are asking for diploma privilege now in Kentucky formally by filing a petition with the Supreme Court. So yeah, uh, up here in Washington State, as I said before, uh, we we have been granted the option of diploma privilege, but the fight the fight still rages on, if you will. Uh, the order, as it was delivered, grants graduates of an ABA accredited law school JD holders the ability to take diploma privilege as an option if they are registered to take the July or September administration of the bar exam here in Washington State. 
that order does not extend to those who have withdrawn their registration or ha who have moved their registration to February um, or subsequent administration of the bar exam. Uh, nor does that order uh, give the diploma privilege option to LLM degree holders who are, look, who are seeking licensure uh, by taking the, the, the bar exam um, because they, were, they, they are lawyers in foreign jurisdictions. Uh, so our advocacy is really um, centered on expanding the scope of this order, trying to make sure that we're not leaving these folks behind, especially our LLM degree holding uh, colleagues, excuse me, uh, because uh, many of them are uh, in this country on visas and those visas are time sensitive and if they cannot find uh, employment within a certain period of time after graduation uh, they could be facing deportation or the choice of overstaying their visa so that they can take an exam so that they can continue to be in this country um, as far as the next steps for us um, i i think as we move forward uh, well i guess i can share this now the supreme court of washington has stood up a committee to study the effects of the bar exam. And I, I think really using this group of people that are admitted without the bar exam as almost a control group um, so that we can throw some hard data at the perform at the at the assertions being made about what the bar exam is, what it does, what it does not do. Uh, so that in three or three to five years time, uh, we can definitively say uh, we're a UBE state. We can definitively say the UBE serves the, the purpose for which we use it for, um, or it does not. And maybe we need to relook uh, the method by which we test, or maybe just alternative pathways to licensure without a, a standardized test altogether. So here in California, our test is in a lot of ways up in the air. Uh, so we currently are not entirely sure when our exam is going to be. We are assuming, I think it's a pretty safe assumption that it will be um, if we're not granted diploma privilege, some sort of online test, we don't know if it'll be in September. We don't know if it would be in October. So, um, you know, we've been advocating since March for diploma privilege, and there's been a number of different um, meetings and announcements by the state bar here in California and by the Supreme Court here in California. Um, you know, in all transparency, Bilad and I have had to sort of fight to be able to be heard um, over the last few months, both with regards to the state bar and the court. So, you know, we initially submitted a petition on behalf of, you know, about 1,500 folks at the time that had signed in support of a letter for diploma privilege. We sent a similar letter to the Supreme Court. Um, then in June, the court uh, said that, you know, they had initially postponed our exam to September. They released a letter saying that they might be postponing it to October. So um, Bilad and I again send a letter to the Supreme Court on behalf of our coalition members. And so currently there's a lot of momentum around how to address the bar and the Supreme Court from a number of different avenues. So, you know, one thing we're working on, for example, is how do employers feel about this and how can we leverage employers to try to persuade the bar and the court in favor of diploma privilege? How do we here in California procedurally also submit a petition either for waiver of a rule or a petition to be heard so we can formally advocate for diploma privilege before the court? And then Pilar can speak more to this, but also just an impact survey, right? Sending a survey to our coalition members and seeing how, um, 
the process of studying for a bar exam and then having to take a bar exam would impact them and being able to present that information either to the state bar or to the Supreme Court as well. So currently just working on a number of different fronts to be able to present um, data to the bar and to the Supreme Court. Most recently today, the deans here in California of California ABA accredited law schools met with members of the Supreme Court. The results from that meeting also kind of up in the air. There may be considering diploma privilege. One justice had an open mind to it, but at the same time, it seemed like maybe they were, they were uh, trying to make an October online test sort of work. Um, so, you know, from our perspective, we're now sort of working on all those projects I mentioned, as well as, you know, in a few days, there's going to be an opportunity for students now to address the Supreme Court, right? We had the deans have their opportunity today. Students will have their opportunities. So I think that moment here in California is going to be very crucial. And it's going to be important to be able to organize um, students to get their message across to the court um, during that opportunity in a few days and then take it from there. And Brian, to to sort of demonstrate the networks of solidarity, I think it cannot be undervalued the significance of a Google Doc. <laughs> I recently I recently came across this amazing Twitter post. Um, activists be like, I know a place and they take you to a Google Doc. And our coalition has so many Google Docs. And if people want to know, if folks want to know why is there a nationwide movement, that's because the sharing aspect of this, the I'm in this with you, right? Like that element is so lacking in the legal profession. And yet look at what we can do when we come together. Just to demonstrate a little bit of that, um, Donna and I, our template is what Washington used for their initial communication. And our impact survey was Washington's uh, because Efrain, you know, reached out and said, hey, we want to pay it back to you. This impact survey meant a lot for for the in interested stakeholders. So we took it, we adapted it for California. And, and it's actually, I'm pretty convinced that the Supreme Court was willing to listen to us because of all of these data. And I know that the deans of the California ABA accredited law schools were willing to listen to us because of these data. And if we had not made these connections with Efrain, we would not have uh, thought necessarily to invest time and effort into an impact survey. And perhaps had we not had connections with Efrain before, Washington would have taken a little more time, right? Like we like to think we all have a part to play in this process for diploma privilege um, that's not simply geared at one jurisdiction. I think the other strength of a network is that we all have very different models at each, in each of our states. And it can be very overwhelming for folks who just want to start a petition, who don't understand how some of these dynamics work. And while, to be clear, we never provide legal advice, we can provide policy you know, recommendations, like maybe find someone within the legislature who knows how to engage you know, the Supreme Court in a very specific way. And that's because people have, been, have expressed generosity of spirit with us in California in giving us insight into how all of these dynamics work, because neither Donna and I grew up, I don't think anybody on this panel grew up being familiar with legalese, number one being familiar with legal systems, number two. So we are, in, for all intents and purposes, in very different ways, outsiders of the legal profession. I think it's important to center 
that that outsider status has actually created, has recentered people who are often forgotten, not only in the legal profession, but in legal practice. Um, so I, I want to highlight that. I think it's critical because I think folks sometimes think, oh, they're so organized. I can never do that. Right. And it's not the case every day we're texting one. I mean, we are organized, but it's because we're putting in so much labor and we're communicating with one another. And we're when we have a question, we ask. We don't when we don't know how to we rely on each other emotionally, too. Um, so that kind of solidarity, I think, is critical for anyone who wants to start a United for Diploma Privilege movement in their state, and we are here for them. I think that's also, you know, I hope you have listeners in Iowa. I hope you have listeners in Hawaii and Alaska because we're here for you. You are not alone, and we will help set you up. We have an onboarding team. Thankfully, Washington is kind of taking that on because they're, you know, their their movement is continuing, but in different ways than ours are is ours are. <laughs> so that's you know, you have people who have your back. That's my dog, Sonia Sotomayor Hernández Escontrías, and I really apologize. She has such a voice. She's very vocal. Well, so I can only imagine that this movement and its rapid growth came as a big surprise to, you know, the National Council of Bar Examiners as well as state bar examiners and the Supreme Courts that ultimately oversee the bar. Um I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how some of those organizations have responded to this movement, maybe how their responses have changed over time, if at all, and what tactics you've found most effective in kind of getting your message across to these these regulators who are really important to the kind of success in the moment of what you're trying to accomplish. So I'll say something really quick about the National Conference of Bar Examiners, which for folks who don't know, NCBE writes the MBE, which is the multiple choice section of the bar, which every state except for Louisiana currently uses in their bar. And then for folks who have the UBE, NCBE writes the entire exam uh, and NCB also writes the MPRE. And so I think I'll just say that when we first started organizing in March and April, NCBE circulated a, I guess it was a white paper. They circulated a paper saying, essentially, we think as the folks who write the bar, we think that the bar is the best way to ensure attorney competence. And they said that diploma privilege was, um, I forgot what the exact verbiage they used, but they said something to the effect of that diploma privilege sort of robs the public of knowledge that you are a competent attorney. Um, I, so they, NCBE kind of, as you would imagine, right, they they have a literal vested financial interest in the bar exam. So of course they think the bar exam is great. Um, so they were, they came out in opposition immediately, which I want to highlight the irony of that, considering the president of NCBE, Judith Gunderson, is a beneficiary and recipient of diploma privilege. She's a graduate of a Wisconsin law school, which prior to 2020 was the only state that had diploma privilege. Um, so, I, and, and NCBE is, um, uh, it, it is in Wisconsin. Uh, all the folks who work for NCBE are all Wisconsin-based attorneys. I, just, I think it's, that was one thing that was really interesting to me is that NCBE, I guess not interesting, it's, it's no surprise, right, that NCBE who writes the bar exam thinks that the bar exam is good. Um, so that's, NCBE was not a fan of the movement and is still not. And on Twitter, 
they have, you can see on Twitter that they have kind of, they block certain tweets. If you reply to their tweet about diploma privilege, they don't even see the, the response anymore. They have, they've, they've done something to their Twitter so that they don't get to see all these ads and tags, et cetera. I first want to respond to something that Pilar said. Uh, I, I do want to, I do want to highlight for your audience that uh, the, the conversation got started here in Washington because of a product that was uh, templated based off of a petition coming out of California. And that was sent out through, I think it was an all SBA president uh, network listserv uh, that I happened to see as conversations were starting to, 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 to spring up here in Washington. Uh, so I, I, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of paying it forward. There's a lot of, uh, there's solidarity all over the place. Uh, but I, I do, I do think I, I want to respond to Pilar and say like, it's it really, this is something I think that originated in California and this product. Uh, we are here because of the efforts that started with that team, uh, which has in, in, been springboarded by what's happening in Washington and Oregon. Um, but uh, an interesting tactic that we took on here in Washington was not to attack the bar exam on its face. Uh, I think it's pretty well known that the bar exam is is kind of sacred. It's a sacred cow for this profession, um, for lack of a better saying. So our tactic, our strategy was, let's not talk about what the bar exam is or isn't. Uh, is or isn't. Um, let's talk about contingency plans. Uh, because right now we have this global health pandemic that's making it really difficult to put a thousand people in a building to test for two days or three days on end. Uh, so what do we do if we get to that point? What are the consequences of having to postpone a bar exam uh, for all these people that are that are dependent on the, the assumption that they could be working by September? Um, what are the consequences if it gets canceled all, altogether? How do you go about testing these people uh, you know, a year after the fact or six months after the fact? Well, the answer is you don't. Um, that you're subjecting these people to untold financial hardship. Uh, there's no real way to get them back into a pipeline where they can be in a position where they can adequately study and prepare for this bar examination because, you know, they're probably working because uh, they need to work. Um, and I, I think as we, as we picked apart the scenario of what if we cannot test, it became very clear that diploma privilege or an alternative pathway to licensure that doesn't require administration of, of a bar exam is the only way we get there equitably. Otherwise we leave a lot of folks behind. Uh, and uh, that, that was, that was a tactic that we've used. I don't know if it's getting a lot of traction in other places, but it's definitely something that uh, perked up the attention of the Washington state bar association and the Washington Supreme court. I think what's really fascinating about this movement is everything is always contextualized in a historical moment. So Donna and I, when we began the California movement, absolutely centered BIPOC. And for those of you out there who don't know what BIPOC means, that's Black, Indigenous, People of Color. Um, as women of color ourselves, that was critical to highlight. Additionally, um, we have a legislature that is very invested in exposing these types of issues. And so we felt from the beginning, it was critical to highlight the problematics of, of an administration at all. <laughs> um, so it's interesting, you know, as you talk to different states, um, there was no way that we weren't going to attack in some very respectful ways the, the, the notion that the bar exam equates with competence. Um, we had to do it because, frankly, you know, I think Efrain and his Washington fam had a different experience. And I think this has shown me a lot about what is California and what does it mean to 
elevate ourselves to a standard where we think we are the most progressive and we are the most radical. Um, and I don't think that anybody who's on the inside of this is shocked by what I'm about to say, but Donna and I sent probably at this point in the hundreds of emails, um, requests, you know, to be heard. Initially, many of these conversations were closed. They were closed to the public and they were, you know, they were deploying um, codes to us saying, you know, un- pursuant to code section, blah, 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 we we have the right to keep this closed to the public. And so we CC'd a, a group of about 20 legislators who were critical to, I think just their very presence meant that there was some observation occurring. Um, and so I think I, you know, I've learned so much about California and the and California politics. Um, we had to go there because we weren't being listened to. And there have been, I think the other thing is there's just so many waves of this movement. We have been here consistently since March, but our initial discussion in California had more to do with the problematics of postponement or provisional licensing, because it was our understanding that online administration was almost absurd at a certain point. The NCB had come out and said, we won't have an online version. <laughs> um, and and we just really were very caught off guard by the, by the court's decision, respectfully. And that's what prompted us to add questions in our impact survey related to access to the internet, related to access to quiet spaces. And I, I feel like the legal profession, like most professions, is very happy to critique outside but very, you know, very uncomfortable critiquing within. So we we sent an impact survey to all of the signatories of our, now we have almost 2,000 signatories to our petition. We're still gathering signatures. We're still circulating there. It's just such a big group of folks. There are about 10,000 people who take the bar exam every July. Now we have upwards over 1,300 respondents, and that constitutes like a 13% sample size. Of those respondents, all of whom are going to take the or are registered to take the bar exam, only 28% are comfortable with the fact that they know they have internet <laughs> and, and a computer. And I have to say, Brian, um, you know, I'm one of the 80%, you know, or 75% of folks who don't know whether I'll have internet. And for your viewers out there, I just, I got to say this, we started a few minutes late because your internet wasn't working, Brian, and you wouldn't have passed the bar exam. <laughs> so, and what would we do without you? We wouldn't have this amazing podcast because online examinations are, you know, they have to be administered in such a way that if you, if your internet drops out and if, or somebody walks into your room, you are now disqualified and you have to wait until February. Uh, examination. So, and and Donna and I were actually speaking to um, a reporter yesterday, and the reporter herself said to to us, "Gosh, I don't think I have a quiet space to study, and I have my own apartment. I don't think I would be without noise, right? I don't think that my pl- my apartment would be so sanitized, so quiet, uh, stripped of all images on my wall." and open to all public scrutiny to the extent that is required of an online administration um, to be able to be successful. So, and that's not to mention that all of our Barbary prep courses are, uh, you know, are are sort of prepared on the basis of an, an exam where you get to print out and take notes and write. And that's not the case on online administration. There are also questions like, is this 
ADA compliant. Let me be clear, listeners out there, I am not an attorney, so I am not answering this question. <laughs> but we do, you know, as students, we do engage with these considerations and we do. So we're also in a weird place because we want to be making legal arguments, but we're not fit to quite yet. Right. So that's why it's so critical for us to have people like you, Brian, who are professors, like at least elevating this voice. There are some professors who've, especially in Arizona, who've helped and attorneys who've helped in crafting legal arguments that um, are solid, that can be brought before a Supreme Court. As I mentioned, ours in California are mostly policy driven. As we get more faculty on board, perhaps our petition that we submit coming up on the um, petition for the hearing on the merits is what we're submitting shortly. Perhaps we'll have some you know, professors who are willing to do a pro bono project for us and help us figure out how can we ensure that all graduates in California are conferred diploma privilege because unfortunately we do, well, actually, fortunately, we have non-ABA accredited law schools. Those are heavily populated by BIPOC students. Um, and those folks may be left out of any order that the Supreme Court delivers, and that needs to be addressed. So even if, best case scenario, Donna and I get diploma privilege in two weeks, our work will not be done because this is diploma privilege for all. And we want it for um, our fam, you know, who are, who, who took a different approach than, than we did. So I think it's critical to highlight um, institutional structures and to highlight barriers of entry to the practice and to highlight how this more heavily affects certain communities. And I will say based on our data, again, this is very early on, early stages of preparing a policy report for the Supreme Court for submission on Monday. Based on the data we've collected, especially when it comes to housing insecurity, financial insecurity, food insecurity, BIPOC um, applicants are at 10 to 30% higher indices of this. So we are suffering. This isn't because we're lazy. This isn't because we don't want to do it. It's because our communities are in pain and we need to figure out a more equitable solution and the state bars are not doing it. So it's incumbent upon us, um, even in the midst of studying, even in the midst of social justice uprising, we're taking on this additional labor because it must be done and somebody needs to do it. I, I just want to highlight one more point. Um, folks have already sort of touched all all the different points here, but I I just want to emphasize that this movement, the overall movement and the movement in each jurisdiction has really just been moving forward because of all the work that students have been doing. And it's it's the same students that were kicked out of their housing a few months ago if you lived on campus out of law school. It's the same group of students who had to figure out how to finish law school online, which brings up all the different access and connectivity issues, right? Did you have access to Zoom? Did you have access to submit all your stuff via the internet, et cetera? It's the same group of people who are trying to figure out how to advocate for diploma privilege while also trying to figure out how to study for the possibility of a bar exam and also try to study for an exam when we don't even know when the data is going to be. So it's all of these additional stressors that are going on and students keep pushing and pushing and pushing for this because it's what's right. 
And it's because what makes sense and it's because what ensures the safety of our students and their families and proctors and proctors families. So, so we keep pushing. I will say, I think, um, initially key stakeholders, so bars, um, different courts probably thought that we would just go away back in March or April, right? I think, and I don't know if other folks share this sentiment, but it often feels like big institutions and the legal profession, you know, they, they don't care too much about what students have to say. And so it really took a lot of pushing on our part, right? It sort of was us continually emailing the state bar. It was us showing up for public comment and having over 50 people give public comment, which led to there being a second public comment period. It was us consistently, you know, bothering the Supreme Court with email after email after letter after letter, um, just asking to be heard. And I think at some point they thought we would go away and we didn't. And I think that's why we've sort of kept this momentum, why we're still here while we're we're sort of normalizing the phrase diploma privilege, because back in March, it was a phrase that sounded like it was really radical. And now it sounds a lot less radical. And it's because students have kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Also, you know, just a sort of plea here, students have a lot on their plates. So to the extent that folks in the legal profession can help, you know, as Bilar mentioned, Brian amplifies me, amplifying voices through this podcast is incredible. But other ways that the legal profession get involved is something that's going to be incredibly helpful to the movement. Um, and that I think is going to be pretty crucial in, in the coming months for all jurisdictions. Well, so in closing, I wonder if all of you could maybe reflect a little bit on sort of where you see things going forward in the future, because it strikes me that at least broadly speaking, a lot of the conversation around diploma privilege was focused on the COVID-19 pandemic and the sort of difficulty or implausibility of actually administering a bar exam under the circumstances in any kind of sensible way. But I think as has come out in this conversation already, I mean, it kind of ne necessarily implicates deeper questions about why we have a bar exam in the first place. And I wonder how you see that conversation developing going forward. Can I, can I start off by making a clarifying statement? Uh, so earlier I mentioned uh, LLM students, LLM degree holders, um, uh, potentially overstaying their visas. Uh, I, I just want to uh, clarify that that's within the context of if they cannot test. So most of our, as I, as I mentioned, most of our arguments up here are contingency-based. What happens if we cannot test? And so that was... Uh, that was in living in that scenario of if the bar examination for them in July does not happen, postponement is not an option. And therefore, these people will potentially be looking at overstaying their visas or deportation. Uh, not by their nature, they are looking at overstaying visas or, or being deported. Um, it's if they can't test, they, they could be uh, facing some uh, difficult decisions to make. Uh, as far as future conversations, uh, where this where this goes, um, I, I think it's it's a great opportunity for the legal community to ask itself uh, why is this bar exam a thing? Um, and I and there are this has been the topic of a lot of debate. And even in the three years I've been in law school, the bar exam is, is a pretty contentious issue. Um, supposedly, we take the LSAT to prepare us for law school. The ABA accredits law schools because they want to protect people who 
become lawyers or they want to ensure a certain degree of quality um, so that when you go into the practice of law, you're, you, there's a benchmark. Um, and then the bar exam supposedly does the same thing. Um, I, I think in our, in our advocacy, there's been a lot of, there's been assertions that this is a, a, a public, a protection of the public measure. And I, I think if, if, if that is the goal here, if we are trying to ensure a certain degree of competence in our legal professionals, there are many ways to do that. And I think this moment where states are choosing to just do not get to give people the option to practice without a bar exam, I think we're acknowledging the elephant in the room and that this, this standardized test, especially for the UBE jurisdictions, it's, it's a formality. It's, it's, it's something that is only serving in many, is, yeah, I'll say it, only serving to bar entry to the profession for those who don't have two grand to drop on a prep course. For those who can't afford to take out a mortgage worth of debt to go to law school and then not be able to work that summer to start paying off that debt, uh, I, I think I think this is a, a a brilliant moment that we're in right now, and I, I hope that you know emergency diplomat privilege will be what it is. But in the in the years and months to come, we we really sit down and, and grapple with this because there are a lot of good attorneys out there, a lot of good potential attorneys out there that will never be attorneys. Uh, but for this exam. Um, so I think my sort of vision for the future, sort of looking beyond the COVID-19 pandemic and what uh, the bar exam looks like in the future or what licensure looks like in the future to become a lawyer. I'm personally a proponent of bar exam abolition in its entirety. Um, and I do want to give a shout out Pilar and Donna and Julian Sarkar wrote an op-ed for Jurist in which they did a pretty good analysis of what purpose the bar exam is serving and whether it is actually measuring competency. And they note on the racial disparities of who is passing the bar exam. Um, it's not, it's, it's mostly white people, right? Um, so that's, I think we have to sort of think about this and why is it that you can see these sort of racial disparities in who is passing the bar exam and who is not. And I also think this is a critical moment um, because so many so many ways in which by these courts uh, giving diploma privilege like Washington and Utah and Oregon, whether the courts want to say it or not, what they have admitted is, okay, maybe the drugs isn't a measure of competency. So I think this is a way to say, look, Washington granted diploma privilege, Oregon granted diploma privilege. Clearly, they're not, the class of 2020 isn't incompetent. And so I think this is, it is sort of underhandedly admitting yeah, the bar exam is a gatekeeper that we're going to waive for these people. So why is it that, how could you How could you ever justify having another bar exam if the world isn't going to end with these uh, class of 2020 years practicing law in Washington, Oregon, and Utah? So I, I'm, I'm really excited in this moment. I think it's a terrible time socially and it's a public health crisis in the moment, but I think this is really going to shape the future of what licensure looks like, what the bar exam looks like. And I hope that other states follow suit, and I hope this um, this thing that Washington is doing that Efrain mentioned works out so we can see, look, yeah, these people who are in the class of 2020 are just as good of lawyers as people who took the bar exam. So I'm, I'm really hopeful, and I hope we do move towards a path of bar exam abolition. Yeah, so I will speak on my own behalf, not on behalf of the movement, and I too am in 
the camp um, that Emily is in, which is the bar exam has to go. And um, I think there's a number of reasons. And I think one of the big reasons why the bar exam stays and why institutions want it to stay so bad is because, you know, once we have this conversation around abolition of the bar exam, it's sort of admitting that for all these decades, we had an exam and there, there perhaps is no purpose to it. So why did we have it? And I think that's a big thing for institutions to admit. But if that's the case, then it doesn't make sense to continue having the exam. I will, you know, I'll note that the bar examination just explicitly has very racist, specifically anti-Black and anti-Semitic foundings. It was a way to keep certain populations out of the legal profession because they wanted to keep a degree of prestige in the profession. And so for me, I just, it's hard to justify fighting so hard for an exclusionary gatekeeping mechanism that really just had anti-Blackness and anti-Semitism in its roots from the start. Um, And I think, you know, it's not that that sort of founding of the bar exam is just in a distant past. Um, If you look at, for example, California's February 2020 data, you know, out of Black students from California, you know, ABA accredited schools that were taking the bar for the first time, 5% passed. 5%, 95% of Black test takers were failing the bar exam. These are folks that went to law school, that were told they were going to get a legal education, that were, you know, taking out loans that were $100,000, $200,000, $300,000, and now they can't pass the bar exam. I don't think the problem is test takers. The problem is that the exam has a disconnect from, you know, what it is that we're learning in law school to what the heck is being tested on the exam. It just doesn't make sense. Um, And so, you know, I just, I personally would like to see the bar exam go and perhaps just be replaced with something that makes sense. If that means supervised practice, fine. If that means continuing legal education that looks different than it does now, fine. But you know, upholding this gatekeeping mechanism that is racist in its founding and racist to date doesn't make sense, especially if there's no empirical data that says that it, you know, is measuring competence or it's measuring your success as a lawyer. So, you know, from my perspective, it just seems like another burden to entering the legal profession. We already have, you know, the, uh, disproportionate rates at which BIPOC are going to college in certain colleges, and then how they're scoring on the LSAT, and then how they're getting into law school, and then how they're performing in law school. And then now for the bar exam, it just, it compounds to an extent to which it just, it has to stop at some point. And we have to recognize what the impact of all these gatekeeping mechanisms is. And it's exclusionary and it's excluding BIPOC in particular. And so for those reasons, bar exam's got to go. I think from my perspective, I agree with everything that's been said. Um, I think we're still parsing through what does what does it mean to be part of a coalition and have individual views as to what this all looks like. Um, So, you know, what what is a coalition stance? We're still developing that. What is my personal stance abolition? I'd really like to see a licensure regime that acknowledges history in an honest way that reflects on the purported goals of the legal profession and really honestly grapples with what does justice mean? Um, 
that's more, you know, committed to equity for folks than it is to precedent. I mean, we are so, you could have a whole theoretical paper on how the legal profession is so tied to precedence um, and precedent. And what does that mean? And what does that mean for liberation? Um, I think that we need to liberate ourselves a little bit from these ideals of a bar examination. And I think diploma privilege in the immediate um, at the convergence of all these moments in history, right? In the immediate moment in which we find ourselves, this must create, I think, a rupture. Um, so this also means for folks who are out there that we have to radically envision ourselves and we have to really ask and, you know, ask us what profession are we a part of and what are we happy with it? And do we see it as this, the space that we entered? I think if you ask all of us, why did we become attorneys? Most people will say, I really wanted to help people. You know, I really wanted to like be a voice. I know what it's like to not have a voice. And I want to be that, you know, I want to assist people in in being that for them. I see injustices and I want to make them better and I want to take it away. And I just want to take people's pain away. And I think that's why we're in the movement. So that means and we we really demand of these stakeholders who are in opposition to us to engage in some self-reflection, to admit that the profession can be radically transformed. Maybe this looks like uh, you know supervised practice. Maybe this looks like something else. But use the critical thinking skills that you yourselves have demanded of us as students. Uh, come up with some innovative ways to approach everything, right? Um, and I have to just, I really want to end this by saying I've been so inspired by seeing my classmates and recent graduates. Throughout this interview, we've identified ourselves as students. And I think that demonstrates the liminality in which we find ourselves too. We also kind of are feeling like we're students. How do we enter this space? How can we demand better of a profession we haven't even been a part of? You know, um, And I think that we, I, I just want listeners to know that we have been inspired by our exchanges of love, of tears. We've shared stories of pain. And we've displayed a tremendous amount of courage. We've put a lot of our own professional lives on the line because we've incessantly emailed people. You know, we've like, we've put ourselves in really uncomfortable positions. And we demand that same courage of the, the decision makers. Um, we ask you for a spirit of courage. We ask you for courage of thought. We ask you for courage of practice. Please re-envision what we can become. We're begging you and we're giving you some suggestions. Please take us up on our offer to assist. Well, Emily, Donna, Efrain, Pilar, and I really appreciate all of you coming on. And I'm, I got to say, I personally am, am really impressed by the work that you've done, what you've already accomplished, and what I know in my heart you're going to be accomplishing going forward. And I couldn't support this project any more strongly. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, Brian.
life was as still as the desert. The moon was bright overhead. Bill listened a while to the lawyer. He could hear every word that he are so pretty and lovely, your form so rare and divine. Come go with me to the city and leave this wild cowboy behind. Now back. 